You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 25 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and as always, I'm joined by my boys, Connor Johnnan and David Inhow. Our guest tonight is Dr. William Taylor. He is a new professor in anthropology and museum science here at the University of Colorado Boulder. Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for being on today. How are you doing this evening? Hey, thanks for having me on. Doing all right. Awesome, awesome. So could you just give our guests a little background about who you are and what you're studying? Yeah, so I'm William Taylor. Um, as you mentioned, I'm the one of one of the curators of archaeology at the uh, Museum of Natural History at the University of Colorado here in Boulder, and I'm also uh, assistant professor in the anthropology department. I am an archaeozoologist, or uh, you might say zooarchaeologist, and my research is focused mostly on the study of animal domestication, with a big, big focus on the question of horses. I work in a lot of different places, but um, mostly in in kind of uh, East and Central Asia, Mongolia, China, um, some different places over there. And then nowadays also here in North America in the Great Plains. So, yeah, what, what kind of got you into um, archaeology? So I'm, I'm from Montana, to be honest with you. Uh, it, it's real cliche, but... I grew up, I mean, I think I learned how to read playing an Indiana Jones computer game, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. I grew up uh, desiring <laughs> to one. be Indiana Jones. <laughs> I've always heard the Indiana Jones movies as being a catalyst, but never an old... Uh... Yeah, for me, it was the computer game. It was, uh, if you check it out, these old kind of point and click adventure games, uh, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. It's a fantastic uh, journey through... It's not exactly accurate, uh, but it is a journey through uh, the prehistory of of uh, the Mediterranean. In a, you know, it's an Atlantis deep dive into Atlantis. Highly recommend if uh, if you're able to handle that that sort of thing. So, so the Atlantis stuff was right, but they used like a pointed trowel or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I guess I'd, uh, I I think there's no faster way to get people kind of uh, lathered up in archaeology than to A, mention Indiana Jones, and then B, mention Atlantis. <laughs> I guess I differ from most of my colleagues in thinking that these are both, inc- you know, generally awesome things that have their downsides. Uh, but I lo- I'm, uh, I'm kind of a geek on both of those things. Oh, well, good stuff, man. <clears throat> yeah, you're so, a good company. So you went to undergrad at Carleton College, right? Uh, it's funny that you, of all people, would mispronounce the name, um, but I guess uh, it's got an extra E compared to your name. Is it but Carleton College? Like, really? It's yeah. not? Oh, yeah, it's God. just, it's just it. pronounced Carleton College. It's named. It's your namesake, bro, and you you messed it up. Oh, almost. I don't have E's in my name. But where is Carleton College, and does it have a big anthropology department? Uh, so... <laughs> So Carleton College is in uh, southeast Minnesota. It's a town called Northfield. And Northfield is, uh, if it's known for anything, it's because that's where the Jesse James gang was defeated by the local citizenry in a failed robbery. And it's not a big town and it's not a big school. I was able to study archaeology there, but we just had a really, really tiny cluster. Uh, there was one, one professor who was full-time in the kind of classics department. And then there was a visiting professor in between the two of those. And they cobbled together some, some geologists and stuff who were kind of interested in, and there was a little bit of an archeology span concentration, but uh, it was kind of hanging on by a thread, but luckily there were some really smart people there. Shout out to professor Bravo. If he's listening to this, he really kind of got me hooked back in from my childhood dreams. So so what, what led you to be in this kind of small town in Minnesota for college? Is it just proximity or is it? So a couple of things were going on. I mean, I grew up in Montana. So to be honest, my grandpa went to this school. It was on my radar. I kind of went there for football as well as academics. I was, I, I wanted to go somewhere where I had a, 
decent shot at doing both of those things kind of the way that I wanted to. So uh, there was a family connection and then, and yeah, football uh, played a part in that too. What, you played football in college? I did, yeah. What position did you play? Uh, I was an offensive lineman, so I played uh, guard and then tackle. Really? Wait, huh. wait, like, how tall are you? This is um, going to be... Six, six foot five. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Now I've just I've only seen pictures of you on like on Instagram, so I was like, I was a little heavier back then. I've dropped you know sixty pounds or so since then. Oh, what were you? Wow. What were you, Carlton? You were a lineman. I was a I was a tight end. Thank you. I was like a half lineman, half uh, receiver, a suicide receiver, if you will. <laughs> I sat on the wow. bench in baseball. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, thank you, David. Thank you, David. So you went to Carlton. I was about to say Carleton again. So you went to Carleton College first and uh, went there to play uh, to football and do academics. Now, did you immediately go into anthropology or was there kind of like that aha moment in another class? No, to be honest, I had kind of two different ideas going into school. I was always kind of interested in wildlife biology in high school. And then, in fact, when I got into college, I thought I was going to do political science. So I got my degree in kind of political science and international relations. And uh, but it was it was like my last year and a half of school that I kind of picked up on archaeology and then it all clicked. And so I knew even though my ended up with a sort of less than relevant degree, I knew coming out of school that that archaeology was was what I wanted to do because I had spent a couple summers doing field schools and doing some kind of internships and that kind of thing. Gotcha. So you got your master's and your PhD at University of New Mexico down in Albuquerque. Now, did you go immediately from undergrad to your master's or uh, was there some time in between that you did CRM? Yeah, I basically went directly there from, from my undergrad. And why'd you choose uh, University of New Mexico? Uh, again, it, I mean, it sounds silly, but my mother and my grandfather both went there as well. So it's just, it's like a family connection. It's, it was always on my radar uh, as an interesting place. And then I guess what happened is that when I was kind of inter- starting to get interested in archaeology as an undergrad, I was looking for folks that would let me intern, kind of learn the ropes, especially researchers or museums. I ended up messaging like everyone that I could find their contact info at the Smithsonian. And I I think I probably sent close to 30 emails and I only got two replies. And one of the replies was from Mindy Zader who studies animal domestication and would end up, you know, being a really good, great mentor to me. But she said, I'm sorry, you know, we're, we're going to be gone this summer and we've already got stuff figured out. But, you know, um, if you're interested down the line, you know, message me. And then the other person was Bill Fitzhugh, who runs the Arctic Studies Center at the Smithsonian. And actually, he talked to to our class this semester uh, that Carlton was a part of. So you you recognize his voice anyway. Bill, you know, he, he does a lot of different stuff. He works in Mongolia. He works in Newfoundland and different parts of Canada and Quebec, but his kind of like, he has this idea of studying the Arctic. So he, he works all over the world through the study of, of Arctic cultures. And so Bill was kind of the person guiding me into grad school. And I was looking for somewhere that I could keep doing this Arctic studies thing. There's not a lot of places that you can do that. And so I was looking at school up in Alaska and also at UNM where the the researcher who would go on to be my advisor, Jim Dixon, is was at UNM. So I basically applied, applied because um, I wanted to work with Jim. And then I ended up in Albuquerque because I felt a little bit more comfortable with it because uh, I have family connections there. And then also because um, the, the money worked out a little better there. Well, that's, that's super interesting, man. Uh, especially what, when you're talking about how they consider like the Arctic, Arctic, you know, more than just, uh, you know, Canada. Cause I feel like Americans, that's what we think of as the Arctic. But if you like, you know, if you take this kind of global view, you know, the taiga and all the, the step in Mongolia are also kind of part of that so that's super cool that you're like you know kind of getting into this area that's like huge and you know is a large part of the globe i think that 
uh, that had a huge impact in kind of the way that I end up thinking about archaeology and and the world is that, you know, right from the start, I, I had these kind of role models who were thinking about the whole world and they're not letting political boundaries limit their thinking or their research questions and stuff. And ultimately, it's something I try to kind of emulate as I got into archaeology a bit more. That's yeah, that's super cool. I mean, it's just it's something I, I, I had never thought of. So you said and you mentioned as part of like um, kind of between your transition from undergrad to, to grad school, you did some field schools. Where did you do a lot of your field work? So my first field school was um, was in my own backyard at the Montana Yellowstone Archaeology Project, which was with the University of Montana. And it was in in Yellowstone. We worked a couple different spots in the park, w- one of which was kind of up pretty much near near Gardner. We spent the most of the time, it was on the shores of Yellowstone Lake, kind of the north edge, which was just unbelievable. It was awesome. Yeah, that sounds like a good time. <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, not a bad and, spot to start out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the uh, kind of a weird experience because... I've been to Yellowstone a bunch, but I guess probably because my folks knew about the tourism situation. We never went in the summer, really. We went like in the fall and um, the winter. And so it's like this crazy juxtaposition is that you're there for work and you're, you know, you're in one of the least, you know, developed places in the U.S., but there are the, you're staying at a, like a campground with just hundreds of tourists and some of the most clueless, unbelievable people that you can imagine. I mean, the guy next to my tent got gored by a, a buffalo in in the campground while we were staying there. Um, oh my god! It, it, I woke up one morning and there was there's buffalo sleeping, kind of in our within the campground area and. You know, a lot of idiots kind of taking pictures and stuff and getting way too close. And then we came back and there was the the, the word on the street was that he had been hospitalized. So, whoa, pretty wild, <laughs> pretty yes. wild to be in that place where you're at the same time you're in the middle of this beautiful, you know, nature reserve. And this, uh, at the same time, you're just hundreds of completely you could not pick a more clueless group of people to be in the outdoors and you're in close proximity with them and stuff. So that, yeah, it was an interesting experience. I don't know if you're familiar, but there's a, uh, Instagram called Torons of Yellowstone. Um, uh, and no, it's just like, it. <laughs> it's a compilation of just videos of people being complete idiots at Yellowstone and like other national parks, but it's a lot of Buffalo. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's pretty good. There's also like a book that's, uh, what is it called? Uh, like deaths in Yellowstone or ways to die in Yellowstone. And it's a compilation of people just like, Hey, I'm going to walk into old faithful and see how that goes. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's sort of like a, it's somehow it's a bright light for people that are just unable to, to sort of control their urges. I guess when the parks were closed, someone even died in the, in one of the thermal features, um, because people just can't resist whatever, you know, Darwinian urge is driving them. So. <laughs> Darwinian urges. Yeah, Yellowstone is definitely a fun spot. On our way back, I just recently got back from Montana, um, thanks to thanks to Dr. Taylor. And uh, yeah, the northern end, we really wanted to drive back through Yellowstone, but the northern entrances into uh, Montana were closed. And we weren't going to huh. drive a five-hour roundabout to go back through Wyoming, which was uh, a bummer. Yeah, it's a it's a great place to get. If you haven't been up there, you really you really should get up there. Oh, dude, we've been when I used to live in Wyoming, we used to go a, a bunch before I went to grad school. We'd always always head up there. It's always a fun spot. So while you're at University of New Mexico before this break, like, um, what was your uh, thesis and dissertation on? When I was in grad school, I worked a couple different places with Jim. We we worked up in Alaska for a couple of summers, but I really wanted to. I had gone to Mongolia the summer before I entered grad school with, uh, with Bill and the Arctic studies guys. And I just really wanted to get back there. So one of, for me, one of the like formative experiences of my life was in that first summer in Mongolia, before I started grad school, we excavated 
a 2,500 year old horse burial. And out of that horse burial, you know, it was, this thing was like five meters in the ground. It was just basically weeks of physical labor just, just to open it up. And, and it was just a horse, but that experience was unbelievable. I mean, this beautifully preserved skeleton of a horse from one of the world's first kind of horse cultures. And, you know, it had this, this bridle with beautiful gold inlays. And I just made these incredible friendships and I just got hooked and I wanted, I kind of always had this in the back of my mind. So my dissertation, basically when I started out, it was just go back to Mongolia, look at horses. And that was really as far as it, as it had been thought out. But I found a little bit of support from the American Center for Mongolian Studies uh, they give these little student support grants and it got me back there. And I started trying to study kind of the origins of horse culture in Mongolia. So when did people start herding horses? When did people start riding them? How did this kind of way of life develop? And it's a kind of thing where similar to many places, this is a culture that is a, a nomadic kind of a grassland culture and their history is kind of written by sort of snarky farmers from China who didn't like them very much, right? And so the history, historical record would have you believe that Mongolians started riding horses, you know, maybe 200 BC. And as a result of, you know, the advancement, great advancement of Chinese civilization. But we had this thousand years of additional archaeological record of horses here. And we had no way, you know, no, no real artifacts to speak of other than ritual horse burials and bones of horses. So, so there's nothing really except stone monuments and rock art, as well as bones of horses to work with. So, so my work was basically, let's get into these uh, horse bones and see if we can find ways that we can use them to learn something about their relationship with people and kind of the origins of Mongolian horse culture. So it, it was a lot of looking through modern natural history collections and, and trying to develop new and, and use old ways of understanding horsemanship through the animal skeleton. Well, that's dope, but we're going to have to continue this horsing around Oh, dude, session. you took it. That's exactly what I was going to say mean, for it, my segue. It, it was low-hanging fruit, dude. It's like, we, we had to go for it. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> I wanted to start this off by saying nay, but then I realized it'd be super ridiculous. So I'm just going to say welcome back to segment two of a Life in Ruins podcast. Uh, we're horsing around here again with William Tabor. Oh, that was also super lame. Uh, whatever. We'll just keep it. So no! uh, <laughs> That came oh, off oh, not. Oh, boy. <laughs> Let's cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, yeah. so uh, how did you? So this is the first bullet point that we have to talk about. How did you get hooked up with studying horses in Mongolia? I know we kind of talked about it in the last segment, but let's just let's just go hard. Yeah, so I mean, basically, I just kind of stumbled into it through this connection with Arctic studies. And what I would say is that for me, the reason I stuck with it is I felt like it a little bit connected me back to my own family. My grandpa was a rancher and my dad grew up on the ranch. And then I, you know, had this unfortunate experience that I think a lot of folks my age have where it's like uh, your your family and your kind of traditions and your culture are one thing. And then you grow up kind of like in a, in a town or a city, right? There's this disconnect. And I felt like it was, for me, it's interesting to be able to, to get back back into that kind of the origins of horse culture here in Mongolia and felt like I was connecting a little bit with some of my own family story, you know? That's cool. So there's like, there's a little bit of a, yeah, a personal connection to some of this, this research you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting to see, I mean, like, like you mentioned in a previous segment that, you know, there's this history that's written by certain folks. So you were kind of unraveling this deep history of horses on the step that wasn't exactly something that everyone is talking about. I think I find that super fascinating, especially because Mongolian and 
Chinese history is so intertwined and interconnected. And have you have you really dealt with any issues studying that as part of your research? You know, one of the things about archaeozoology and studying animal bones and studying doing what what you might call archaeological science is that it has this really unique ability to correct historic bias or serve as a kind of a counterpoint to it. But that that goes just as much for the history of folks that might they might have had their history written by someone else, you know, whether it be for for colonial reasons or or just um, for historic reasons. It's just as true for those folks as it is for correcting mistakes or gaps that people didn't know were there in the archaeological record of of a place with a really, really rich tradition like China. So, you know, we've had some really big successes working in China as well, because sometimes you just want to understand a process that doesn't come through in the historic record. If you want to understand, you know, where did this revolutionary change emerge from? Like, for example, when did people start riding horses? Why and how? Not every step of that change is going to be you. You typically in the historic records, you might get the last little snippets of that change. Or maybe somebody writes down what happened and why and why they made their choices. But for the most part, to study big, big level processes, they're beyond, they're often beyond humans' conscious awareness, right? And that's mm-hmm. true, just as true in 2020 as it was in the past. So I think it's really cool to be able to use kind of zooarchaeology as a an additional tool that pairs nicely with historic information and also t- tends to counteract some of its uh, excesses, I guess you could say. Well, that's, and that's cool that because, you know, a lot of sites that we get um, in certain places are zooarchaeological remains and we have to kind of connect them back to humans in a way that, you know, makes sense and is scientifically tested. So it's, it's cool to see that used in other countries as well, um, at least to kind of tell the stories of, you know, people, people in the past. Yeah, I think it's really important. I mean, the problem is that, you know, you can't really draw easy lines between, you know, country borders are, are relatively meaningless in terms of understanding our common history. And so, yeah, I think it's important that, that uh, folks all over the world end up getting to do that kind of thing. Totally irrelevant, but one of my favorite memes to come out of some of the build the wall down in the south, because it's we're only thinking about this, thinking about Mongolia and China, was the uh, meme that was like walls work. And then it's a picture of Genghis Khan and it just says laughs in Mongolian. Um, so I'm going to use this as a teaching moment here. <laughs> don't don't say don't say Genghis. Don't say Genghis. Uh, it's Genghis, right? So the, the American English pronunciation would normally be Genghis, but that is... So if you want to be proper Mongolian, you would say Chinggis. Chinggis. Okay. Nice. Awesome. Chinggis uh, Han. Han with a soft with uh, a soft kind of H sound. Yeah, feel free to make this whole podcast a teaching moment for Carlton. You know, that's okay. that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but like the 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 reason like we say Genghis is like from a like French transliteration or something like that, right? I remember hearing it that. It may somewhere. be, I'm actually I'm not really sure. Okay. I mean, I think I learned that on like history channels, so it's probably nonsense. But um, <laughs> if Carlton, uh, if you end up coming to Mongolia, you'll you'll get all this stuff down. Oh, dude, broke. I was so bummed. Well, I mean, among other things going on and the horrible crises that COVID nineteen has bestowed upon the world, the loss of going to Mongolia was definitely uh, a near and dear sorrow to my to my heart. But moving away from the East, so started doing the horses in Mongolia, but you also worked at the Max Planck Institute, which is a like highly prestigious institute. And those that work <laughs> there, it's kind of a pretty, why are you laughing? Because I was trying to think of a word other than institute. And then you said institute too. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, we're on the same page is what I'm saying. What I'm yeah, at. I couldn't think of anything else. I was like, so... I mean, Max Planck, highly, highly prestigious in, in the world of science. Um, how did you get that gig? And, and uh, 
yeah, just tell us about it and how you think getting a position at Max Planck um, was beneficial to your career. Yeah, you know, uh, I think as you know, you may end up figuring out it's a pretty rough, pretty rough world out there. Once you you feel like you spend all these years thinking I'm going to get my PhD, and then you get it, and it's like, oh, uh, <laughs> I need to find a job now. And uh, it's not it's not an easy market out there, and the world in Europe is a little bit different. I mean, uh, there's there's a lot more science infrastructure and. It's pretty obvious to me after spending so much time in, in America and then going to Europe that this is where the world's leading minds are in archaeological science for sure. And uh, I just backed my way into it. To be honest, I got really lucky that uh, these folks were looking. They they literally posted uh, a position for Mongolian archaeology. <laughs> so you know, there's a limited pool of folks that that uh, are are finishing up, you know, their PhD in Mongolian archaeology, and so I ended up pretty much overnight. It went from being a grad student that was, you know, working in Mongolia as a grad student at UNM. There, you, I have wonderful, wonderful advisors at UNM, but no, none of the folks there were Asian-oriented folks, and so. Pretty much my whole dissertation, I was kind of working on my own, uh, was kind of off on my own trying to figure it out. And uh, UNM is a great school, but it doesn't carry a whole lot of, the name doesn't carry a whole lot of weight overseas unless, uh, you know, every once in a while you meet somebody who's like a fan, a fanboy of Lou Binford or something, but it's like, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't really resonate with people. And so I was sort of starting from a position where my, my name and my credentials meant nothing. (laughs) And I had to kind of connect with people, you know, interpersonally or, or get them interested in ideas. At Max Planck, it, it really switched overnight where all of a sudden you just have these incredible resources at your disposal. And also people just assume that you know what you're talking about Whereas nothing about me actually changed or my ideas. It just, I had all of a sudden this big boost in sort of un, unearned credibility, which uh, was a huge, huge advantage and ultimately very, very cool and useful. But I'd say the, the, the best thing about working there is that unlike any other place I've been to, you have this just group of literal world experts on every subject you could imagine and you're sharing offices with them. And you get to share ideas with them. And it really just expanded my mind in terms of what what tools can we apply to study the past? You know, I was pretty into osteology, but working at Max Planck, I walked away uh, learning how to work with people in ethnobotany, with people in DNA and isotopes. I, I came away knowing how to do some... Uh, mass spectrometry stuff and you just start to think of archaeology as this really really multi-methodological interdisciplinary science that's part of the broader science world which i don't think we always think about things that way uh here in the states i certainly didn't uh, necessarily learn that through my education it really kind of opened my eyes in those those couple of different ways so did you take that as inspiration for kind of dealing with this starting a new archaeozoology lab at CU Boulder? Is that kind of like the template that you kind of worked from? The template that I've worked from, uh, to be honest, draws mostly on my other kind of key advisor, Emily Jones at UNM, who set up an archaeozoology lab from scratch while I was her student. And so I got to watch her do this and i really try to emulate her approach in in most of in most of the things that i'm doing but what i would say is that in terms of how i hope that our lab ends up i would like it to be much more capable of hard science than your averages your average zohar lab would be but i also wanted to keep what makes American archaeology special, which is a focus on teaching, a focus on personal relationships, a focus on 
holistic understanding of archaeology as a part of anthro. You know, there's a lot of things. There's European science on its own has a lot of things that don't need to be emulated or copied either, right? So I'm, I hope that eventually we can find a, a middle ground, uh, something that's combining the best of, of both worlds. I think that's a great idea. I, I've seen the the facility you guys have there, so it'd be, I mean, I really like that campus. It'd be a really cool situation to have at Boulder. But, yeah, it's, a, I mean, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough battle to, to make a new facility. I mean, as Carlton's yeah. <laughs> well, well aware, the first problem is space and, you know, it, we work in a building that's a hundred years old and so it's going to be, it'll be a journey to get us up to up and running. It'll be a multi-year adventure, but. Yeah. And, yeah. and for those listening, the, uh, Dr. Taylor's archaeozoology lab has an Instagram. It's at CU archaeozoology. And uh, he posts, he posts things on there to see what's going on. But I mean, like, yeah, I, um, as Dr. Taylor's alluded to this past semester, spring 2020, I was his research assistant helping him this this lab and not only is there focus on getting collections which comes from even like we've had Devin Pettigrew on the podcast before and we did the goat experiment which we talked about and I'm hoping it doesn't make me get it's making me gag again but we got the goat um and that's going to that's going to Will uh, Will's Will's lab and uh, we've also ordered a number of specimens and how hard it is to find dead goat find dead goat dead goat stop. Dead oh, goat. Has a, Dead you goat. got a pretty weak stomach there, bud, don't you? It's 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 just how bad it smelled. Like with the uh, with the bison we just did, not a problem. Like totally fine. Even two days of the hide uh, sitting in its blood in a cooler, not a problem. But that that marinated goat was just something special. Um, and on that note, Carlton just killed the segment like he killed that goat and puked up <laughs> afterwards. And then we'll meet you on the other side of episode 25 with Dr. William Taylor. And we are back with segment three of a Life in Ruins podcast, episode 25. So, Dr. Taylor, you did uh, a lot of your research out there in Mongolia and China. And how is that translated into researching horses in the new world here in the American West? Well, as I kind of hinted at, you know, uh, my first archaeology experience was was here. A lot of my my work and my whole life, it's it's centered in the American West and in, in places like Montana, Wyoming, New Mexico, and now Colorado. So for me, always the the most important piece of understanding the history of humans and horses was always to kind of bring this bring this question home a bit. It's not the kind of question that has often been asked from a archaeozoological perspective because, you know, by the time we have European colonists in North America, it's considered to be history, right? And so it's almost as if until, you know, recent decades that the whole discipline of, of archaeology is sort of excluded from th- these particular um, data sets. And uh, even when material related to the his- early history, or, or I'm, I'm not sure whether you want to call it history or prehistory, the, the earliest connections between people and horses when it's emerged in the archaeological record, it hasn't really been a focus academically other than kind of to say, Hey, Hey, here's, here's some horses. But um, what we've learned in working in, in Mongolia, working in, in East Asia and different parts of the world is that there are whole classes of information that you can learn through the study of animal bones that no historical document is going to give you. Right. And so our hope was that by trying to apply some of these tools, which were sort of the sword was sharpened on the archaeological record of Mongolia and stuff where there's nothing else to work with, but the sword is still sharp and we can apply it to questions here where we by no means through historical documents know everything there is to know about the introduction of horses or the way that it transformed indigenous societies in in this part of the world. And in fact, 
I think a lot of folks would, would tell you right off the bat that those historical documents are carrying with them a whole host of kind of implicit biases or explicit biases. They're more, they're useful and they're interesting, but they're more of a reflection of the European societies that they came from than they are a direct barometer of when, why, and how horses were adopted, you know, integrated into indigenous societies. And so basically since um, the last couple of years, starting at Max Planck and then here at Boulder, we've been trying to take these tools, which were designed for a totally different purpose, right? And to see what we can, if applying them here, will sort of reshape the way that we think about uh, this question, which has traditionally been part of history um, rather than archaeology. That's that's super interesting to um, to to hear, to see. Just for our listeners, horses didn't exist in North America prior to, or I mean, they uh, they weren't adapted to humans or worked with humans until Europeans came here, right? Is that is that correct? So the, uh, the history of horses in, in this continent is really interesting. Horses as a equus, as a, as a kind of a genus, as a taxon, a category of animal um, evolved in North America. So it is a grassland animal that evolved in North America. And then uh, with the onset of the Pleistocene, it dispersed into the old, uh, into, into Eurasia, into Africa, and it became things like zebras and asses and donkeys and horses. Uh, and there were horses, which might look a lot like uh, what you would recognize as a as a horse today, living here in North America when the first people arrived in the, you know, sometime within the last 20,000 years. Um, mm-hmm. And the first, uh, until about 10,000 years ago, um, horses were an important source of their import, important food source people uh, for, for early hunters in the Americas, North and South America. People made, you know, bone tools out of horse bones. People hunted them. Um, they were they were significant, but they were they did not survive the kind of emergence of Holocene climates. And best guess is that they went extinct. In most places, probably about 10,000 years ago, uh, they may have lasted quite a bit longer than that up in the high Arctic. But nonetheless, they were they were off of this continent until the Vikings arrived. And the Vikings did not, as far as we can tell, introduce them anywhere except, you know, Iceland, Greenland. So, Oh, they did. Um, I didn't know that. But they didn't. Horses, uh, horses did not make it onto sort of mainland North America in a, oh, okay. in a, in an established way until, you know, the 16th century. Sure. Well, that's, I mean, it's, it's super interesting because I, I talk to a lot of people um, who are non-archaeologists or non, you know, paleo folks, and they've always assumed that horses have been here, but they've basically their introduction into North America is, is it due to the Spanish? Is it due to, it's like in the 1600s when they really kind of proliferate out, outside of and and take over these landscapes in North America? Yeah, so, I mean, that's part of the thing that we would like to, to understand a little bit better. So this project, um, this NSF project that, that we're going to be starting here this year, we're going to try to combine things like radiocarbon dating with historical records, ethnohistory, and DNA. So, you know, part of the idea is to trace the sources of particular populations uh, and how they spread into different parts of of the high plains and that sort of thing. But but in general, what what you said is is pretty much right. Um, Probably it was the Spanish that, that... um, most significantly introduced them into the Western U.S. But, you know, you definitely had other groups of people, uh, British, French, uh, from a pretty early period. And then uh, by later periods, you might have had horses coming over, you know, from Russia, some other places. So 
So we hope to get into that a little bit more. Another aspect of your research is using the, the indigenous oral traditions, right? Like matching all these things up as legitimate sources of knowledge to kind of yeah. redefine the whole premise that the, the Pueblo revolt was the major catalyst for horse uh, introduction. Yeah, so that's one of the ideas out there that's been a kind of in the historical documents for a long time. And it, it's not fully just pure uh, European bias, right? There's some legitimacy to the idea that, um, you know, when when Spanish were, were expelled from, from New Mexico, right, that this was a major catalyst for the spread of horses. I mean, it, it makes sense logically, but... It also, if you think about it, is an extremely attractive idea for for those of us white Europeans who want to feel, you know, we feel that domestic animals are sort of our thing. And um, and it's kind of like, it, you know, uh, when the cats, cats away, the mice play kind of an idea. And what we're finding is that it's not really necessarily bearing out in the archaeology. And it is... Uh, surprise, surprise! That in a lot of the cases of what what we're what we're finding here is that the best explanatory framework that that we find for the archaeological results ends up being, you know, indigenous ethno history, oral traditions, and a more even if you take historical records, but you just uh, take a more optimistic view or a more constrained not taking everything literally but trying to think uh, along the lines of prioritizing okay what you know what was the um the social fabric of this part of the world at this time and thinking about the implications that might have for you know exchange between people or or this kind of thing and the people this is not my area of expertise, but there are a lot of scholars that have put time and energy into this. And those people, in my opinion, the, the folks that have spent the more time diving into the ethno history and taking indigenous ideas seriously seem to be producing answers that are closer to the truth. And so our project is trying to explicitly integrate that, uh, that kind of information into our research. So we have um, partners at UNM and the University of Oklahoma, um, who are really good at this kind of research and are through this grant hiring folks to explicitly dive into these kind of records and see if see what the story they they might tell is and how it how it might differ from from a purely kind of historical records approach. Yeah, I mean, um, a that's awesome, and, and B just kind of like talking about other methods in which horses got around other than the Pueblo revolts is, you know, the Spanish, A, if anyone that has been on the Great Plains knows it is easy to get lost and horses wander off. And the Spanish had several expeditions outside of the Southwest into the Great Plains. And, and all the times they did, there was one, I think, in the late 1600s where they came across a Wichita village who are um, linguistic co cousins and cultural cousins of the Pawnee and got annihilated. And then there was another one in um, 17... 20. It's actually, yeah, we're about to hit the 300th anniversary of um, the Spanish did another expedition to try to claim the Great Plains and the Pawnee and Osage wiped out that expedition. And all these things were documented on um, bison hides. And, you know, when there's battles and, of course, people moving long distances, it's easy to, you know, kind of lose horses. So it wouldn't be totally out of the realm that they kind of wandered aimlessly for a bit, as horses do. So the thing is, if you take, even if you're just taking historical records only, right? And we look at this a little bit. There is all kinds of historical ev evidence to suggest that by the early 1600s, Spanish were losing horses to raids by various uh, indigenous groups. You know, Apache people show up a lot, but, but also Ute, Navajo. And so there's a clear paper trail here for horses getting out of Spanish control very, very fast after Spanish were permanently in the Southwest. What there isn't a great paper trail for is what happened next, right? And hmm. what we know uh, right by early 1680s, French, French folks were reporting horses along the Missouri. You know, the, the Pueblo Revolt idea 
it's not wrong in the sense that I'm sh- I'm sure that the Pueblo revolt had an effect on the spread of horses, but it's not really justified as a as the starting point, even if you just take a purely history based approach. People think of Plains Indians as horsemen based for such a long period of time. At least that's you know how we understand that or the historical record, but Plains Indians, you know, are more recent adopters of that. And like Carlton, how do you, how do you feel about this kind of uh, portrayal of Plains Indians as a horse culture, even though they're just more recent adoptants of that? So some background, even, even before I met Dr. Taylor, um, cause you know, I work with my tribe a lot that Dr. Taylor had been, had been in contact with the Pawnee Nation Tippo, Matt Reed, who also listens to this podcast. Uh, shout out Matt. Hey Matt. But, uh, honestly, I don't, you know, my, my research focus is, you know, is pre-European contact. So, you know, I, I'm mostly looking at you know, ethnogenesis. And it wasn't until Dr. Taylor came along and, and kind of took me under his wing that I start learning more about historic stuff. And and like rightly so, Dr. Taylor stressed the importance of understanding the impact of horses and, and, and colonialism and, and how you can see these changes. So that's when I started taking an interest. But, you know, I had always, you know, believed, oh, well, it's, you know, the Pueblo revolts. And I really hadn't looked too much into the historical record. And it was really Dr. Taylor showing me some of these resources um, saying like, hey, no, this is probably definitely a major aspect of the dispersal, but in terms of the first dispersal, not not right. And, you know, Dr. Taylor, you know, said like there are oral traditions of indigenous people that talk about having plains at these times. And that really opened my eyes. So that's it's really Dr. Taylor who kind of who who really showed me kind of the 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 a lot of the truth behind a lot of of some of these theories and in, in horse dispersal, because, you know, um, horses changed plains society just as much i mean even you know before europeans really showed up i mean horses were a major change you went from in terms of like warfare how warfare is conducted i mean without horses you really don't get plains nomads um you know without horses you don't there's not a resource that allows for like cheyennes and lakotas to just wander aimlessly on the plains not aimlessly that was rude but you know to just to to do that so it, it was a huge cultural transition because of horses and what a horse is allowed people to do. I mean, it's, if you study planes warfare, it really goes from group based and with horses, you're talking about more raids further distance. It's like, it's honestly the, the best thing I, I can bring it up to. It's like it, it, the, the introduction of horses into the plains Indian societies was like the invention of the airplane for the world. Like it changed so much about warfare and society and closing distances. Wow. Um, and it was just critical. I think one thing that's it's important to, to clarify too is that this work, while you're right that it, we, I mean, it is clear from this work that like horses were introduced into the continent. I think one of the, the roles that archaeology can play here is that that doesn't make this a European process. In fact, I think the the more that we look into the more that we realize that the adoption integration of horses into plain society was essentially a purely indigenous phenomenon, right? And I think that by telling that story, I, I don't think it in any way delegitimizes and in many ways we're we're actually extending the antiquity of this relationship you know, it, as if if you were to look at it from a historical standpoint, you m- sometimes might get the opinion that, you know, basically uh, Coronado showed up and and uh, handed the horse off to folks and that these relationships were only a short lived fleeting phenomenon that we can pretty much thank Europeans for. And I think that the, the work that we're doing shows that to be very, very much not true and kind of restoring the the legitimacy and the antiquity in the eyes of you know this is this is not going to be news to indigenous folks but but it may be news to other audiences that are relying on different sources of information so i think that's one opportunity that we have with the work well yeah i'm we're super excited to hear how this project goes with you will this is a life in ruins i'm going to ask you the question uh, would you choose to live a life in ruins um, if you could do this again? Absolutely. 
Well, good stuff, everybody. And uh, real quick, um, Dr. Taylor, do you have some um, social media to promote or anything where people can follow you, check out this research and any ongoing projects? Yeah, a couple things to say. Definitely check out, uh, as Carlton mentioned, we, we have an Instagram that's occasionally managed by the far more social media competent um, Carlton. But I do post stuff uh, primarily on the on our Facebook page, which is CU Archaeozoology Lab. We also occasionally have stuff on the Horses and Human Societies page, also on Facebook. And then stay tuned if this is interesting stuff to you. Um, in in um, I guess probably 2022, we have a book coming out as kind of a popular oriented book. It's called Hoofbeats: How Horses Shaped Human History from University of California Press. Nice. Well, yeah, well, good stuff. Well, uh, all right, everyone, we just interviewed Dr. William Taylor, professor of anthropology and curator of archaeology from the University of Colorado Boulder. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Hey, gents, uh, what do you call a happy cowboy? Oh, no. A jolly Um. rancher. Oh, boy. Whoa. (laughs) Incendiary. There you have it. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.